There we go. Good evening. I am very happy to be here with you. I'm Michael McCorkle, for those of you who don't know me. And uh, I have been associated with the church here for a long time. And we're going to talk about the history of the church, but not the history of this congregation in Pampa, Texas. We're going to talk about the history of the church, and we're going to go way, way, way back because you are a part of something that has been around and been going and been in process since the beginning of time. Something that was prophesied for centuries, something that Daniel the prophet talked about, this kingdom that would someday come and be established and it would never, ever pass away. And that is the Christian church, and we're going to talk about that. I want you to know, when you look at your Bibles in the Old Testament, you've got a lot of, a lot of the Old Testament is history, okay? It's history books, and they tell stories about history. The reason for that is it's all the story of God bringing His Son, salvation, and His kingdom into this world. A lot of the New Testament is history. And it's God's involvement in the establishment of this kingdom and how this kingdom begins to spread throughout the world and the message of salvation that's found in this kingdom. I am not a deist, okay? A deist is someone who believes God is an absentee landlord. I mean, he started it and he's gone off to the moon to sit and be not involved in the world. I believe God's involved in the world. God has always been involved in the world. But when we get to the end of the New Testament and the end of revealed uh, revelation from God, all the history that's happened from roughly 70 A.D. until now, we don't have an inspired record of. And my suspicion is for most of you, this will probably be the only time you'll hear a series of lessons about the history of the church. Now, I'm real excited to get started and talk about this. You know, we talk about a lot of times, well, we want to be like the New Testament church. Have you ever heard that? You ever heard that? Maybe you've said, I've said that, right? Let me ask you, which New Testament church would you like to be like? Which one of them? And I say, well, you know, some of them had some problems. Yeah, they did. You know, the church had bigotry in the New Testament. Did you know that? There was bigotry in Galatians. Paul talks about before certain men came from James, he, this is Peter, would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself. You had an apostle refusing to eat with people that were a different race. You think that would be a problem? Can you imagine a problem like that in the church? I said, well, we wouldn't want to be like that church. Maybe we'd like to be like a different church. Maybe we'd be like Corinth. Corinth had immorality, terrible immorality. They had some guy living with his stepmom like husband and wife. Paul said, that's not even done by the Gentiles. Well, how's that? They had people in the church in Corinth getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you think would happen if the rumors went out that the church at Pampa had people getting drunk at communion? You think anybody would be here tonight? No. Well, we don't want to be like Corinth. Maybe we could be like Galatia. Galatia had heresy. He said, I marvel that you are so soon turned from him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there be some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. The churches in Galatia had heresy. They had false doctrine. They had people teaching a different gospel. Can you imagine if you heard the church in Amarillo was teaching a different gospel? Would you support their meetings? Not me. I'm not interested in that. You know, they also had personal conflict. You think the church has personal conflict? Think there's ever personal conflict in the church? There was in the New Testament. I say this to your shame. It is so that is it so that there's not a wise man among you, even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. 
They were suing each other and taking each other to court. Can you imagine? We, in fact, read the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, the son of consolation, the guy that was always upbeat. And had, they got in such strong contention, they didn't work together anymore. Did you believe that happened before 70 A.D.? It did. Even in Jerusalem. A church that the Holy Spirit was doing miracles in this church. It was being led by the apostles of Jesus Christ. They had somebody selling stuff and pretending they gave all the money to the church when they didn't. And they had Grecian widows who, because they were Grecian, weren't being fed like all the other widows. Can you imagine if I found out that when y'all had your church dinners, anyone who'd moved here from Oklahoma didn't get fed? <laughs> I hope you're laughing because that's not something that'll happen. Can you imagine that really happening in a church led by the apostles? But it did. You know, the truth is, these kind of problems didn't even wait till after Jesus was gone to start. On the way to the Last Supper, where Jesus is going to wash the feet of the disciples, they're walking along and the disciples are arguing. And Jesus says to them, what would you argue about? You know what they were arguing about? Who was the greatest? Can you imagine if you show up to church here Sunday morning and the elders are on the porch arguing about which one of them's the greatest? Do we want to be like the New Testament church? Well, what we want is we want to be like the ideal that's presented in the New Testament, right? But we recognize and we understand that the church is filled with people and people are imperfect and people are sinful. And when you have a sinful, imperfect group of people, you're going to sometimes have bigotry or immorality or heresy or conflict. You're going to have problems. Now, when we talk about the history of the church, we're going to pick up about 70 A.D., okay? And the reason we're going to pick 70 A.D. is that's when Judaism was over. That was the end of Judaism. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. That was it. It was over. And here, 2,000 years later, the Jews still don't have a temple. It was over. It was done in 70 A.D. And we are going to cover this first section right here, persecuted Christianity, and it's going to go till 312. And the reason we stop in 312 is because that's when Rome quit persecuting the church. In fact, something amazing happened in 312, and that is the Roman emperor himself became a Christian in 312. So let's get started and talk about this section of persecuted Christianity. You know, we're not real familiar with persecution here in America, are we? Better hold on, because we may get real familiar with it in short order. It was very serious, though, during this first part of history, and it was marked by a time of intense persecution. Have have you ever been persecuted for being a Christian? Have you? Think about it. Most of us, if it's been any at all, it's been just pretty slim, right? You live in an aberration of history. The last 200 years in America is the exception. It is not the rule. Jesus said, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That was Paul who said that to Timothy. There's going to be persecution. It's the standard of the world, and we've lived in a time of, of an aberration. But I want to talk to you about the persecution they faced. It's really shown in the death of a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. The Apostle John converted this guy. And he followed John, and he was being put to death. And when they came to arrest him... They offered to let him go if he would just sign a confession saying he didn't believe in Jesus. His answer was this, For eighty and six years have I been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. And how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He says, I can't blaspheme him. He's been with me for my whole life. How can I do that? And when he said that, they said, we will feed you to the wild animals. We will burn you alive. You know what he said? 
He said, you threaten me with fire that burns for an hour and a little while is put out. For you do not know about the fire of the judgment to come and the fire of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. He says, you can threaten me. You can threaten me with just a little bit of fire that's going to go out in a little while and I'll be burned up physically. But you know what? There's a fire that's coming that's much worse than the fire that you can bring on me. Now, brothers and sisters, that's courage. I'm going to tell you, that's faith. That's someone willing to live what they say. They walked the talk, these people did. They were persecuted tremendously. I want to talk about some reasons that Christians were persecuted during this period of time. Number one, they were very distinctive in the Roman Empire. Okay, Christians were very different than everyone else. Christians were, they lived with a different morality. They lived with a different standard than the people around them. Christians believed all people were made in the image of God. You know, in the Roman Empire, they did not have abortion. Abortion was not a common thing in the Roman Empire. They had, instead of that, infanticide because abortion was dangerous to the mother. So they would go ahead and deliver the baby and then they would just leave it on the side of the road if they didn't want it to die. You know, that happens some places in the world today. doesn't happen here in America much. But occasionally you'll hear about it, won't you? You'll hear it'll be a big news story. Somebody found a baby in a trash can or something. That was common. And they did that because primarily they didn't value women. Because women were wealth consumers. They weren't wealth creators back in this period of time. And a guy didn't want a house full of women. Because they didn't create any wealth, they, they consumed the wealth. And so if there was a little girl that was born, it was common to just leave them on the side of the road. And people would come along and they would pick up those little girls and they would raise them and they had brothels and they would make them slaves and make them prostitutes in those brothels. Christians said no. Christians loudly condemned that. Christians said, you know what, these children have dignity because they were made in the image of God. Women have dignity. Women, Eve was made in the image of the living God. And she's a daughter of Eve. She has value. She has dignity. They, they said slaves have dignity. They treated slaves as equals. Because in Jesus Christ, you see, there was no bond or free, male nor female, Jew nor Greek. That wasn't common in this Roman Empire. This man right here, whose name was Tertullian, lived in 160 A.D. And he said this, We have the reputation of living aloof from the crowds. Christians during this period of time tried to be different than the world. Now what we see in American Christianity today is trying to entice the world into the church with the language and culture of the world around us. But that's not what Christians back here did. You know, if you had a Christian bricklayer and he was a part of a union, and they had unions back then, and they were hired, his troop was hired to build a temple to Zeus, the Christian wouldn't do it. He'd say, I'm not building a temple to a false god. He'd refuse to do that. They lived aloof. Most Christians during this period of time wouldn't go to a Roman hospital. If you get sick, would you go to a hospital? They wouldn't go to a Roman hospital because they didn't want some pagan priest walking up and down the aisles mumbling uh, whatever it is that he mumbled prayers to his pagan gods over them. They'd rather stay at home and suffer and die at home than go to a place that was dedicated to a false god. They were very aloof. They were very separate. They believed in living separate lives in very distinct ways. And that made them distinctive. And when you're distinctive, you are someone who is marked out for persecution. Believe it or not, another thing that caused them to be persecuted is they were accused of cannibalism. Can you imagine why would someone accuse Christians of cannibalism? Do you know why they were accused of it? Because of that right there. They talked about eating the body and drinking the blood of their Messiah. Now, you and I do that every Sunday, don't we, as Christians? 
we partake of the body and blood of the Lord, which is grape juice and bread, right? That's what we do on Sundays. They did it on Sundays too. But the people who didn't understand that, and most of the pagans that they lived around did not understand that, they'd hear something about eating body and drinking blood, and they'd say, those people are vampires. I mean, they're cannibals. And those kind of rumors, it was easy to believe. It was easy to defame Christians with that accusation. But we know that Jesus said, whoever drinks, eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. New Testament Christians knew and believed that. But that was something that was easily distorted and misused against Christians. Another accusation against Christians of the day was that they were atheists. You might say, how could you accuse a group of Christians of being atheists? Well, there was at the time something called the Pax Romana, and that means the peace of Rome. And one of the things that the Roman Empire did is it brought peace. And they were very effective. It was a very peaceful time in the world because if you did anything to stir up a, a problem, they brought in their army and they killed you. And so there was peace through strength, so to speak. And there was a lot of peace. And because of that, people were really, a lot of places, were really on board with what Rome was doing in a lot of ways. And they believed in following the gods of these Roman people. You know, the Romans had lots and lots of different gods that they served. But the Roman gods were not like God. Okay, they were not like Jehovah. They were more like the Avengers. Okay, are you familiar with the Avengers? You can shake your heads yes or no. Okay, okay. Most of you know who the Avengers, Thor in the Avengers, okay? That was one of their gods. They believed Flash. You've heard of the Flash, okay? That was Mercury, okay? One of their gods, okay? Their gods were superhumans, okay? They were humans with these super abilities, and they had all the failings and all the wrongs of humans, and they would get mad, and they would get angry, and they would get happy, and there was a tendency to believe that if there was a problem, it was because some god was angry at us. Okay, if there was a plague, well, some God's mad at us. If there was a flood, some God's angry with us. If there was a famine, some God's angry with us. The problem with Christians is that the Christians wouldn't worship all those gods. They would only worship Jehovah. They would only follow Jesus. So they only believed and worshipped one God instead of all the gods. So they called them atheists. Look at this. Tertullian, again, said if there's an earthquake, a famine, a pestilence, at once the cry is raised, Christians to the lion, because they've offended the gods, because they wouldn't take a pinch of incense and make a sacrifice. They wouldn't worship the god of Roma, the goddess of Roma. They wouldn't worship one of the other gods. And so they're mad at us, and they're causing a famine, so let's kill the Christians. It was a common thing at that time. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And Christians understood that that means no Thor, no Poseidon, no Mercury, none of the other gods. We don't serve them because Jesus is the only way to heaven. You know, in the Roman Empire, you could have any religion you wanted. They didn't care what religion you had as long as you would also worship the Caesar and the Roman gods. You could worship anyone or anything you wanted, as long as you were also willing to worship Caesar and the Roman gods. So Christians in the New Testament time, or in this period of time, were persecuted largely because, not because they worshipped Jesus, but because they worshipped Jesus only. Now let me ask you, do you worship Jesus only? You're living in a world that's more and more teaching that all faiths are equal. All religions are equal. I saw an advertisement for a church here recently that said, bring your own God. Can you believe that? 
Bring your own God. Well, that's the way Rome was. Bring your own God. It doesn't matter what God you serve. Just come and be a part of all the gods. And the reality is Christians knew better than that. And by knowing better than that and by living better than that, Christians made themselves the target of intense persecution. Another thing that happened during this period of time of persecuted Christianity was the great, tremendous spread of Christianity. Christianity began very small. When Jesus was crucified, and then after His crucifixion there in Acts chapter 2, as Acts chapter 2 begins, we find 120 disciples, and that's it. It's not a big organization at the time. It begins very small. But just like the parable of the mustard seed, where the small seed was sown and it grows into a great tree, Christianity spread tremendously fast in this period of time of persecuted Christianity. Jesus told the disciples before He was resurrected, or before He was ascended, He said, You shall be witnesses to Me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So he told these apostles, he said, you are going to be my witnesses and you're going to start in Jerusalem, then you're going to go to Judea and then Samaria, and then you're going to go to the whole earth and you're going to take this gospel, this good news, this message. And it did actually begin in the town of Jerusalem, the city. And the city was dominated by this temple, which was the Jewish temple at the time. But this is where the gospel was first preached by Peter and the rest of the apostles. And we read in Acts chapter 2, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. 3,000 Christians. And the church began to grow tremendously there in Jerusalem. I mean, just a few days later, they're adding thousands, and every day people are being added. Can you imagine how exciting it would be if there was a revival in Pampa, Texas, and all of a sudden we started, people were coming to Christ every day? Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be amazing? You think there'd be some resistance? Yeah, there would be some resistance to that. And there was in the name of a guy called Saul of Tarsus. And he hated it. He hated Christianity and he was going to stop it. And he said, I'll kill them all. He tried to get them to blaspheme God. Killed a lot of people. He killed Stephen, the first martyr. He was behind his death. And we find that very soon the Christians scattered. They left Jerusalem because of persecution. You know what? If we had a great revival here and we're converting people every day and then they started killing us, we'd leave Pampa too. We'd run. We'd go somewhere else. And that's what they did. Wouldn't you run? Yeah. And that's what they did, and they spread. But you know, it wasn't too long before they got to Antioch. And in Antioch, they had the very first multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-racial church. Because in Jerusalem, they were all Jews. But once they got to Antioch, it was different. And there's a picture of the gate, the Antioch gate. That's still standing today. You can go see it if you can get over there. The Antioch gate still stands. This city in Syria, Antioch of Syria, and it was a place that people from all different ethnic backgrounds, all different religious backgrounds, all different historical backgrounds, they all came together. And a guy named Barnabas went up there. And Barnabas is working with this church. And he goes and he gets... This guy who persecuted the church in Jerusalem, who's now been converted to Christ, and he brings him down to Antioch, and they're working in the church, and they're spreading the gospel, and the church is growing, but they begin to have some problems there, and they go to Jerusalem. Before long, the church here decides they're going to send Paul, as he's known now, and Barnabas out to spread this gospel throughout the whole world. And they leave and they go to a place called Ephesus. And Paul, as you can see in the map here, he had three missionary journeys. This is his first missionary journey. And he goes to Ephesus. Now there's a picture of the ruins of Ephesus. 
In Ephesus, there was this huge temple to this goddess Diana. And he was so effective at preaching the gospel. And so many people came to know Jesus and follow Jesus that Diana was dethroned. Almost nobody was worshiping Diana anymore. And you know that caused a problem because of all the idol trade. Because there was a lot of people made their money off the tourism of people coming and buying little idols and statues and stuff of Diana. They had a riot in the town because Jesus Christ was now king in Ephesus. And this gospel spread. It spread tremendously throughout all the empire and eventually in about 250 years ended up in Rome so that we find in Rome about 250 years or so later there are 30,000 Christians in Rome. Can you imagine? Do you think there's 30,000 Christians in Amarillo? Can you imagine? And it spread all throughout this Roman Empire. Wouldn't that have been an amazing time? But you got to remember, during all this time, they're under intense persecution. Why would a church grow when it was being persecuted like that? I mean, if you talk about Jesus, they're going to kill you. So why would the church grow? Well, here's some reasons the church grew. Number one, Christians preached it. Everywhere they went, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the Word. They didn't just have missionaries that went... Everyone preached the word of Jesus Christ. All the people did that. You know, as persecution grows, people kind of get entrenched and people who are willing to face up to that persecution are less, for, less afraid to speak up. They're more willing to speak up. I teach at a private Christian school and I had one of the ladies recently, a fellow teacher, come to me in the break room and she said, Hey, she said, what do you think's going to go on here in America? I said, well, I don't know. She said, things are getting bad. I said, yeah, they are. She said, we got our passports. I said, well, <laughs> that's, that's maybe a good thing. I don't know. She said, well, you know, we may need to leave. And I said, yeah. She said, I just don't know. I'm worried about my kids. I said, I understand that. I said, but I want you to think about this. I said, just think about how exciting it will be for your children to sit in a building, in a room with people that they know every other person in that building will die for Jesus. And she went, <laughs> she wasn't too sure she was excited about that. Can you imagine? Hey, people who are willing to die for Jesus, they're not afraid to talk about Him. And these Christians did. They heralded it everywhere they went. Secondly, the gospel actually changed people. Did you know that? The gospel made people different. Look at Paul. Paul's still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That's Paul while he was in Jerusalem. Paul leaves Jerusalem chasing Christians. And here's what we read about him just a little bit later. Saul spent some time with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. It changed him. He was different. You know, one thing about persecution is you don't have a whole lot of half-hearted Christians. You don't have a whole lot of lukewarm Christians when there's persecution. If it was a risk of your life to be here tonight, I mean, if coming here to, for this tonight, you were likely to get arrested or killed, you think we'd have the same crowd we've got here tonight? I'm not asking you to look and point. I'm just asking you to look at yourself. When there's a lot on the line, it's different, isn't it? You know what? The gospel changed people's lives. And when people were different, the folks around them saw that. The people in the Roman Empire saw the difference. There's story after story of people being persecuted and willingly dying for Christ and how other people were motivated to come to Christ because of that. Their faith had a great effect on people around them. This man, Julian the Apostate, who hated Christianity, said this, Christianity, and he actually called it atheism, has been specifically advanced through the loving treatment rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar, that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. 
He said, what a scandal. These people, there's no beggars among them. They take care of everybody. They love everyone. In fact, another letter I've read, one guy writing about Christians, he said, these Christians are so crazy, they love each other before they've even met. It was insane to them. But you see, that's what the gospel does to people. The gospel changes people. I want you to know American Christianity, and I use that in a real broad sense, has been watered down. The come as you are, just as I am that we sing, that's great. But it's the truth of the matter, scripturally, is come as you are, but you can't stay as you are. And the gospel changes people. And if it didn't change you, you didn't repent. And that's not obedience to the gospel. The gospel requires and caused that change. Another thing that was really strange about Christianity that caused its great growth is anyone could be a Christian. And once you became a Christian, you were equal with everyone else in the kingdom. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever, anyone. You could be a slave and you could come to Jesus. You could be a woman and you could come to Jesus. You could be a child, you could come to Jesus. You could be important and you could come to Jesus. You could be a poor beggar and you could come to Jesus. And once you came to Jesus, you were part of the kingdom of God and a child of God and heir with fellow heir with Jesus Christ of all the blessings. Amen? You know, that was different than all the other religions. All the other religions, all the other philosophies. You know, you might agree with Aristotle about philosophy, but you're not going to go preach Aristotelian philosophy. But you know the gospel that Jesus Christ loved you, and you're going to hell, but He saved you, and you don't have to go to hell, and He'll take you to heaven. That's good news. That's real good news. And it's good news for everyone. And that was different in the kingdom. Look what the Romans thought about that. This guy, Aurelius Celsus, said, Far from us, say the Christians, be any man possessed of any culture or wisdom or judgment. Their aim is to convince only worthless, contemptible people, idiots, slaves, poor women, children. These are the only ones whom they manage to turn into believers. He hated Christians. He said, they'll accept anyone. Anyone can be a Christian. They don't just have the dignified and the important and the valuable. The way Paul said it was this. We recognize no man according to the flesh. All things are become new. He is a new creation. No one according to the flesh is different. I heard a story about Andrew Jackson when he was president went to a church one time. And someone warned the preacher that Andrew Jackson, the, the president, was going to be there. And they said, you need to be careful. And he got up and he said, I understand we have President Andrew Jackson in the building with us tonight. And there was a round of applause. And he said, I want to say that Andrew Jackson will die and go to hell if he doesn't repent of his sins. After church, Andrew Jackson told him, he said, man, if I had a battalion of men like you, we could whip the world. But you know, that's the gospel. It doesn't matter if you're president or if you're a pauper. It doesn't matter who you are. You can be a child of God. And I want you to know that message is appealing to people who were lost. That message is appealing to people who are lonely and empty. To be surrounded. I came in here. I saw the love you have for each other. I saw the encouragement. Y'all know a couple of years ago, my son was hit by a drunk driver and almost killed. I want you to know that was hard for us. But we were surrounded by incredible love. I know you were praying for him and for us, weren't you? You were. The love and support that we had. I saw people in that hospital going through the same kind of thing by themselves. Terrible, terrible, estranged from family, having no church, no support. I want to tell you the benefits of being a part of the kingdom of God are amazing. And they cause the kingdom of God to grow tremendously. Another thing, and this may sound strange, but Christians died well. Okay, Think about Stephen when he was killed. They stoned Stephen, and as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Think about that. They're killing you. And you say, God, don't charge them with Can you say that about the guy who cuts you off on the road? Christians died well. There has never been a group of people who died willingly and dignified in a dignified manner like Christians died. Christians died with dignity. Christians died with confidence. Christians faced death because they knew what was beyond death, you see. They weren't intimidated by death because, oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? It's gone. The sting and the, the victory of death, it's gone for Christians. And so they could die with dignity. Irenaeus, who was an elder in the church, said this, I am dying willingly for God's sake, if only you do not prevent it. Now, he was speaking to fellow Christians when he said this. I beg you, do not do me an untimely kindness. Allow me to be eaten by the beasts, which are my way of reaching to God. I am God's wheat, and I am to be ground by the teeth of wild beasts, so that I may become the pure bread of Christ. Can you imagine the faith in Jesus? Can you imagine being someone putting another person to death and hearing them have this kind of confidence in their Lord? One of the stories I've read from Christian history is about a group of Christians that they were killing and they were causing them to go out into the lake naked on ice, a frozen lake and make them stay out there. And if they would deny Christ, they could come off of the lake and get around the fire. But if they wouldn't deny Christ, they had to stay out on that lake and freeze to death. And the story goes that one of those people out on the ice, after length of time and suffering, gave up. And he quit and he came off the ice for the fire. And when he did that, one of the Roman soldiers stripped off his clothes and headed out on the ice and took that man's place and died for Jesus. Christians died. And if persecution in America gets to the point where Christians here begin to die for it, we will die well for Jesus Christ. That's what caused the kingdom to grow. Can you imagine how compelling that would be to people with no hope no, nothing to gain from life. They didn't have their Lexus they could drive or their Tesla. They just had misery and suffering. Can you imagine seeing people who had a reason to die that gave them a reason to live? And that caused tremendous growth in the kingdom of God during this time of persecution. Paul said it this way, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Amen to that. Now I want to tell you something else about these people. This church, one thing that marked this period of time was the canon of Scripture. Okay? Now, the canon of Scripture, by that, I mean this right here. This that you call the Bible. Now, during this period of time, the writings of the apostles, they were all recognized. They were passed around in scrolls, but it wasn't all in one book like it is here. And you had, during this time, early heresies. Many heresies, and we're going to briefly mention these. The Ebionites said Jesus was just a man. He was a he was a prophet, but he was not divine. You can read that same heresy in the Da Vinci Code if you want to read that or watch that movie. It's the same heresy. It's the same lie that existed back with the Ebionites. But Paul, or Peter rather, said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We know that's true. The Gnostics, they said Jesus was never a man. He was divine, but he did not come in the flesh. He was a man. But he wasn't really a man. He pretended to be a man. He appeared to be a man, but he wasn't really a man. Someone says, well, does that really matter? I mean, aren't you being awfully picky? He was God. He was man. I mean, where he looked like man. Or, isn't that just being awful picky? Does it matter? Think it matters? John said, if you deny Jesus has come in the flesh, you're an antichrist. 
Because if Jesus didn't come in the flesh, He didn't die on the cross. And if He didn't die on the cross, we're all going to hell. You think it matters? You better believe it matters. There's a guy named, oh, well, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess that Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. The passage from John. Another guy named Marcion. Marcion came on the scene and he said the Old Testament had a different God. You ever heard that? There's an angry God in the Old Testament and a happy God in the New Testament. You'll hear that from people. He rejected all the apostles but Paul. He said none, none of them understood. They were all legalists. They were all corrupted with Judaism. Paul's the only one who understood the gospel. The only gospel he accepted was Luke and he edited out everything about the Old Testament out of Luke. Removed all references to the Old Testament and published his own Bible without that stuff. Paul's the only one he liked. Like the book of Romans. You know what Paul said in Romans? Those things which are before were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Paul read the Old Testament. Paul believed in the Old Testament. This guy didn't. The Montanists, and that's not Joe Montanists. That's the Montanists from a long time ago. He said the God of the Old Testament was a true God and Jesus was true, but Jesus promised to send the Comforter, the Paraclete. And guess who that is? It's me! Everybody, you need to worship and follow me. Forget what they wrote. I'm going to tell you what's true. And he revived a practice that hadn't been done since the death of the apostles, and that is he and his disciples began speaking in tongues. First time it had been done in over a hundred years. These were all false doctrines, false teachings. These were all heresies of the day. God, who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. So you see, this was not something that the New Testament church took lightly. The last thing I want to mention about this is the rise of the clergy. And this was, this was a pivotal turning point in the history of the church. Okay? Originally, the way the church was laid out by Jesus is that there were in every church saints, bishops, and deacons. Okay? We today normally call them elders, but the word elder is the same office, the same position in a church. Okay? In fact, when we look at it, the word elder, bishop, pastor, shepherd, and overseer are all different words that describe the same job in a church. Just like me, I'm a teacher, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a son, I'm a grandfather, I'm an American. Those are all different words that describe me, okay? And these are all different words that describe the men who lead a church. Now Paul said in every church, that's what they had. They also had saints in every church. The word saint means holy, saved, Christian, child of God. Those are all words to describe the same thing. Saints were not a Christian's hall of fame. Saints were just Christians in every church. And they also had deacons in every church. Now deacon, the word servant and minister are the same thing. They describe the job of someone who is officially designated to serve and assist the elders, the bishops of the church in this. But there was a change that occurred during this period of time. And that change was when one man became dominant out of that group of elders, and he became recognized as the bishop. We don't have time tonight to go into all how this happened, but we're going to talk just a little bit about it. But before long, what you had was a bunch of presbyters or elders. Above them was this one elder who was dominant. He was considered the bishop, and there were deacons who served them, and then saints under that. So you see, this is the way it, it turned pretty quickly, they shortened presbyter to priest, got rid of the deacons, and it was mainly fed by this guy named Ignatius. He really had a lot of influence in causing this to happen. He said this, Follow the bishops as Jesus Christ, the presbytery as the apostles, and respect the deacons. Let no man perform anything pertaining to the church without the bishop. And his idea was this, 
We've got false doctrine. We've got the Marcionites and the Ebionites. How do we stop that? How do you stop the Ebionites or the Marcionites from getting their doctrine out? How do you stop that? Well, what you do is you put one guy who's faithful and can really be trusted in charge of each church. And he keeps all those false doctrines out. And his reasoning was this. Jesus was one man and he was over the apostles. So maybe we should have one man who's over the elders and make the church look like it did with Jesus and the apostles. Does that seem like a good idea? Well, some, in some ways it might. I can understand that reasoning. But I want you to know this was a pivotal doctrinal change. This was a departure from the New Testament. The New Testament does not teach this. The New Testament does not teach there is anything above the local congregation in authority. It doesn't exist in the Bible. But what you had eventually was a bishop over a group of priests. And the bishop of one town would send priests out to other towns who would start churches and they would all report back to that bishop. And before long, you had groups of bishops who all had priests under them. And you had men in areas where there were large populations and they called those guys metropolitans. Okay, nowadays they call them cardinals. Okay? And these guys were in these major metropolitan areas and they had authority over all the bishops under them who had authority over all the priests under them. And you see how this changes and eventually they have one guy who is called the Pope who is over all of them. And we'll talk tomorrow more about how that developed and how that began. But let me tell you why. You know, people didn't wake up one morning and go, man, how could we disobey God? I know, we can have a Pope. That's not what happened. They had real, genuine problems. You know, they were under intense persecution. And you know, under persecution, sometimes, some people denied Christ. Can you believe that? Some people did, under persecution. They denied Jesus. Can you imagine if they were persecuting here? And they were denying... What would you do if someone denied Christ, they kill other people, this person denied Christ, and then later wanted to come back? Would we forgive them? And I say, well, of course, we forgive. Jesus said forgive. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Put yourself in their spot. I mean, let's assume they're persecuting the church here. And they round up a bunch of us tonight after church. And they say, we're going to kill you if you don't deny Jesus. And Brother Lonnie says, I'll never deny Jesus. So they kill him. But they also catch Ian. I'm going to use you as an example. I hope you don't mind. And Ian folds. He crumbles under the pressure. And he goes, okay, I'm out. And then the persecution goes down. And Ian comes back to the church. And he says, I shouldn't have denied Jesus. I want back in. Do you let him back in? What do you think Shannon and Trent are going to think about that? Our daddy died. And you denied Jesus and you want back in? I don't know. I don't know. That's a hard question. It's not as easy as sitting back 2,000 years later and looking at it and going, oh, of course, we forgive. It's a tough question. I mean, how do we know that Ian didn't cut a deal with the authorities to come back and then tell them where we were all at? How do we know he didn't do that? And that's the way he lived. We don't know. So this guy by the name of Cyprian in Carthage, who was a bishop down in Carthage, Carthage said, yes, we do this. We allow them back, provided the bishop forgives them, and they do acts of penance to prove their, their repentance. Okay, so they do certain things to prove their repentance. So there were two main guys in this big debate, and it was a huge debate throughout the church. Two main guys. One was named Cornelius, and he said, Yes, we do what Cyprian said. We let the bishop decide whether they should be forgiven or not. And then there's Novation, and Novation says, No. The book of Revelation says those who are fearful, and that word fearful means those who deny Christ under persecution, said they have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. They're not allowed back in. Who do you agree with? I mean, if you were in that spot, what would you do? Who would you? Let me, let's do this. Let's have a show of hands. How many of you are novationists? And would say no. 
We got one novationist among us. How many of you are Corneliusites? You say, yes, they can come back if the bishop says they've repented. We got one or two. Okay. That's a hard question, isn't it? I mean, it's not just, you can understand. These people weren't trying to disobey God. These people were in a terrible, hard situation. But what they did is they compromised Scripture. They compromised the Word of God. And it's just like on CSI where they show the shot guy and the tiny little bullet hole in the front and they roll him over and there's a big hole in the back. It goes in small, but it comes out big. And what they did was they put the prerogative of God to forgive sin in the hands of a man. And when a man has the right to forgive sin, by the time we get to 590, we've got a guy sitting on a throne saying, I am Jesus Christ on the throne and I'll forgive you or send you to hell. And I want to tell you, it was a major, major change that ultimately thrust the world into what we call the Dark Ages for a thousand years. I want you to know your brothers and sisters in the Lord were persecuted. There were ten Roman emperors who murdered and tortured your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And during all that time, they died well, and the church thrived, and the church grew. And I want you to know that you and I today, we may face persecution. It may be coming. And I want you to know if it does, we can handle it just like they did. We're part of something that's so much greater than a congregation in Pampa, Texas. It's so much bigger than a group of a hundred people. It's worldwide and it will never die. It will never end. And it is an amazing story how God upheld these people. You know, as we study church history, and I hope you'll come back and be with us tomorrow because we're going to talk about some amazing things. As we study church history, we are looking at the vineyard of by their fruits ye shall know them. We're looking at what happens when God's people obey Him and when they disobey Him. And I hope one of the primary lessons we get out of this is we obey God, no matter how practical it seems to disobey Him at the moment. We obey Scripture. We obey just what the Bible says. Now, I know we've gone a little bit longer than normal tonight. I appreciate your patience. This stuff's fascinating to me. Do you enjoy learning about this? I hope you do. I hope you're able to be with us throughout the rest of this week. You're going to learn some amazing things and be introduced to some fantastic brothers and sisters in the Lord that maybe you've never heard about before. We always close our lessons with an invitation. If you're not a part of this kingdom and you want to be, I'll tell you what, Jesus can give you something to die for so you'll have something to live for. That's eternity in heaven with His Savior, with your Savior, with His Father and with all the Christians back then and now who live faithful to Jesus Christ. If the church can assist you in any way, we offer a song of invitation if you'll come to the front while we stand and sing.